Good day and welcome to this special Editor's Choice edition of the JCMS podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Barber. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And today we'll be talking about a truly fascinating topic, something that is really front and centre in medicine, academia, and almost every walk of life. Artificial intelligence. Does it exist? Are we going to be using it in the near future? Is it just smoke and mirrors? How will it change the way we work and live? We're lucky to have as our guest someone who spends his research life in this world and thinking on this topic. Dr. Zhu Kai is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Dermatology at Stanford University. He received his medical degree from the University of Montreal, and after graduation, he completed his dermatology residency training at the University of Montreal Hospital Centre and at St. Justine Hospital Centre. Thanks so much for joining me today for this conversation about AI. Now, what is it? Well, you tell me how it might affect dermatology. Thank you so much, Dr. Barber, for having me. So to to make it simple, AI is basically um, the ability to do something without being explicitly programmed to do, do it. Uh, so for example, in dermatology, it can be used to uh, diagnose skin conditions, it can be used to assess disease severity, um, and it can also be used to help us write uh, patient notes. Um, and I think there has been a lot of research in the past few years, and um, there are a lot of things to discuss. Where does machine learning fit into this? Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence, and it's a term that's frequently used interchangeably with deep learning. Um, and um, it's basically using um, neural networks. And neural networks are a, a way for a computer to uh, simulate uh, human neurons. And it's very complex. There are synapses. And it learns from big data, so a lot of data. Mm. And with all this data, these neurons mm. can output uh, a result that can be interpretable by uh, by clinicians by us. Yeah, it does sound a lot like we are going to lose our jobs. <laughs> I mean, you say you promised we we wouldn't, but neural networks and synapses and uh, deep learning—it sounds like uh, it's only a matter of time till they add the visual component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so. In dermatology, it really first started in 2016, 2017, uh, with the with the paper from Stanford, uh, which said that uh, AI is better than dermatologists at diagnosing skin cancers. Um, and with time, we realized that this is not true, uh, because uh, when you use the same algorithm on real patients, real images, uh, it doesn't perform as well. And there are a lot of biases also in our data set that we need to uh, correct before uh, the algorithm can really be used in real life. And so far, there really isn't any FDA-approved dermatology AI algorithms. Uh, There are in radiology, but I think we still have a long way to go in dermatology before this becomes true. And so that's why I think we're still going to keep our job for a few years at least. What do we need to do? in order to cross into that FDA-approved world? Um, so it's a very complicated process. What we need right now is more prospective trials 
um, which means using um, AI algorithm, which was trained and tested on retrospective images. And we had to test this algorithm on perspective images. So real patients, real images, uh, a diverse uh, Fitzpatrick skin type, a diverse uh, gender and sex, and also diverse uh, geographic areas. Is that going on now? So this is what uh, we are working on at Stanford to to make sure that we have a diverse data set and use this diverse data set to train algorithms that can be used for triage purposes. So this is something that a lot of teams in the, around the world are working on. When you say a lot of teams around the world, are you talking rapid progress or is this a handful of people at various you know, centers of excellence? What's the movement? Currently, the centers with expertise in AI and dermatology are, are limited, I would say. There are a few groups in Europe. There, there are groups in Asia. Um, and there are a few centers in the United States as well. Um, and I think it's something that's picking up speed. There are more and more people interested uh, in AI and dermatology, and there are more and more people working on this subject. So I think the next few years is going to be very interesting. Do they publish in the um, standard journals, or they publish, do you have your own journal? Um, yes. Um, so um, most of these papers are published in... Um, in the conventional uh, journals that we read, for example, uh, the JAD, the JID, um, JAMA Dermatology, and a few of the high, the ones with high impact are published in Nature Medicine, Nature Digital Medicine, um, and also uh, the New England Journal of Medicine will have a new AI um, sub-journal as well. So that's going to be interesting as well. So in your world, where are you going with your research? So currently at Stanford, we are working on um, using AI to triage uh, Mm -hmm. patients. So we're working on, so we have uh, collected uh, patient images uh, from Stanford and Cleveland Clinic. And hopefully we can use this data set to train an algorithm to be able to help primary care physicians to triage these lesions and to better prioritize um, skin cancers. Okay, so you're working only in the in the skin cancer world. You're not doing inflammatory diseases or, you know, hair loss, for example. I mean, where where does where are you going with this? Um, so currently, we are only studying um, skin cancers mostly, um, but there are more and more studies studying um, inflammatory diseases, like you said, and hair loss. Uh, but those studies are still limited. Um, I think there are a few reasons why. One of the reasons why it's it's just easier to uh, to diagnose a skin lesion, a single skin lesion, whereas for uh, psoriasis or eczema, we need multiple images, uh, and it's more difficult, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but there are more and more studies using AI to assess disease severity, for example, PASI, easy. So that's something people are starting to do in the recent years. Okay. So if you have a PASI score, it still requires the human to put the number in. Are there machines that can do a PASI score for us? So the studies currently, so for example, a patient can upload uh, their pictures and the AI will technically be able to look at the image and predict uh, a uh, body surface area and a few of the PASI scores. 
but it's not a complete process. Of course, it's yeah. uh, it, it still needs human involvement. Well, that's good. Okay, so yeah. you have it's in the skin cancer world. Mm-hmm. What sort of things are you doing? I mean, it, it can't be so much diagnosis. Is it just is it taking data, say in the melanoma world, and looking at depth and prognosis, those standard sorts of things, or is it trying to actually judge from the surface architecture? Or you're using confocal microscopy. Take me into the melanoma world in AI. Currently, I would say most of the researchers are done on clinical images and dermoscopy images because that's what's most likely for AI to be used. Um, My vision is that AI will be used by, at first, primary care physicians. um, And in order to pick up those melanomas, those basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas, Uh, Because we have learned uh, with past researches that um, AI is not as useful to dermatologists as they are to dermatology trainees and primary care physicians. So, for example, we don't think AI can contribute much to an experienced dermatologist. So that's why the current research are mostly focused on triage and diagnosis. And there are studies on confocal microscopy, um, but personally, I never use confocal microscopy and I've never seen it being used. Yeah. So I, I believe that its application is limited for now. Yeah, well, it's difficult. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to train to do. Mm-hmm. requires specialized equipment. But though, that's sort of the place where the machine would be quite good because it's machine to machine kind of talking, right? I mean, so I guess I'm getting way ahead of myself because what I'm hearing is that AI to this point is training the trainer, right? So the idea is you're training yes, yes. the trainer. You're, you're, you're looking at your GP model or family practitioner model and nurse practitioner model. So it might be you feed the image in, you get a percentage of, you know, 90% it's this, 10% it's that sort of, sort of discussion. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah, so that's the most likely use case in the near future uh, yeah. of AI, yeah. Now, tell me about dysplastic nevi. I mean, that's a concern to everybody, right? I mean, you, uh, you never want to miss a melanoma, right? And so mm-hmm. that's why we went from, you know, looking with our eyes to the dermoscopy and teaching ourselves the dermoscopy once we started to figure out the dermoscopy. Really, if you don't know what it is at eyeball, learning it at 8x or 2x or 5x power is just multiplying what you don't know five or eight times. So so now is it is it done on image only at the dermoscopy, just a 3D or 2D? How, how is that working? Um, so currently it's usually um, dermoscopy as in 10X. Mm-hmm. And um, so members uh, at Stanford are also working on um, 3D whole, 360 whole body imaging and being able to um, to follow these nevis and maybe also assess uh, okay, the photo that's that's yeah. impressive. A yeah. 360 look at a human. Yes, a is human. that what they're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. And so yeah. the idea would be: patient would come in, strip down, stand on a mission, stand in a in a chamber, if you will. Mm-hmm. Spun around, or the machine goes around, and it has good lighting, and you record what you saw this time, and then. You know, six months later, you bring the same patient back and records it. And wow, now that's exactly. impressive. How, how close are we to that? 
I think these machines are not really readily available. <laughs> yeah. I think they're very expensive. I, I do think these machines can only be found in uh, very specialized centers and also uh, can only be used for a specific type of patients, those with sure. a lot of dysplastic knee But hopefully one day we're going to be used it for everyone. Yeah, but that's crazy. I mean, yeah. I, uh, that, that, that to me is what intel, artificial intelligence should be able to do. It should take those patients that we have the most trouble with, mm-hmm. not diagnosing a basal cell, not diagnosing a squamous cell, but taking these people that come in with, you know, 100, 200 nevi, mm-hmm. various sizes and shapes and colors and, and sort of not and, and sort of recording, but not just recording once and comparing it to a screen or to a, to a bank of images, but maybe doing it time after time after time and being able to have these comparative mm-hmm. studies. Yes, and there, there have been studies, if I recall correctly, uh, using AI to find the ugly duckling among these these nevis. So um, yeah. it will be very interesting to see where this goes. Uh, but I, I, I still think that before reaching there, we, we have a lot of work we have to do yeah. um, because AI is as good mm-hmm. as the data we we train it's trained on yeah. yeah it's like any machine right garbage in garbage out right yes and so exactly. so my you know uh, the ugly duckling isn't the difficult one it's when every duckling is ugly <laughs> right and th- then it becomes difficult you know uh-huh. so so tell me about so this is at stanford yes where can we read about that they're still working on this research okay. i would say i i think it's gonna take a few months maybe a year before it gets published well that's um, soon yeah well, that would be landmark study. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think there, there are a few directions. They, they have collected the data, and there are a few directions that they can uh, go to. But I'm not 100% sure which direction they're going to go with the data yet. Yeah. What do you mean by that? As in, I'm not directly involved in those projects. Uh, okay. I have colleagues who tell me about it. So that's why mm-hmm. I, can, I can say more than that. So what projects... <laughs> Are you involved with with AI in dermatology? Currently, I'm wor- I'm working on a study that uh, that's trying to see how we can better help PCP um, to use AI. Uh, which kind of images are better uh, for them to use? Is it clinical photos? Is it patient submitted photos? Or is it uh, dermoscopy photos? Um, and how this workflow can be can be improved? Yeah. Okay, so you would have. A patient would send me a photograph, like happens, you know, two or three times a day, it seems. And we, you'd look at that photograph or you'd put it in some kind of machine to read it or scan it differently rather than just my eyeballs? So we do know that pictures that are taken by physicians are usually better quality sure. than, than pictures taken by patients. Yeah. Um, but uh, we believe that most pictures that physicians receive are from patients. True. Um, so our goal is to see how we can improve this process and what's the real difference in terms of accuracy of AI in diagnosing a disease uh, between patient-submitted photos and uh, physician-taken photos. Yeah. So what other interesting bits of research are others doing in AI, in dermatology? So I think a lot of research is currently focused on how to make sure that our our data set is less, less biased uh, because we we have learned in the past few years that 
Um, the database that uh, AIs are trained on are usually uh, skewed towards the lighter skin tone versus the darker skin tone. And we know that um, AI that are being trained on bias algorithms are perform less well on darker skin tone patients. Um, so there's a lot of research on how can we better gather skin images, patient uh, patient images, and how can we improve this field? And what are the techniques that we can maybe invent? For example, um, mm-hmm. we hear a lot about gener- generative AI these days. Uh, so there are research groups that are generating artificial skin images of darker skin tones and use this to train AI algorithms. So in in a way to correct the bias yeah, with artificial darker skin tone images. So this is something very interesting that's happening right now. So they take and they color the photograph. Is that what they do? They take a, take a type one skin and make it, they color it and make it look like the type three skin, your type four skin, the same same lesion. Is that how that works? Technically, each of these lesions does not exist. It's an artificial generated one, and okay. it's based on previously trained images. So it's a it's a new one, but but it's it, it's based on the previous images. But it's not real. It's not real. It's, it's, it's not totally real. Fake. Okay. Yeah, it's totally it's, fake. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, it must be a human that decides that this is representative. This fake image is representative of this lesion in a skin of color. Uh-huh. And, and usually, in order to deter- determine this, that, that's where dermatologists comes in. Usually, there, there, there are a group of dermatologists that look at these images and deem them uh, clinically believable in a way. Yeah. Okay, so what's, why wouldn't they just go out and get a whole bunch of patients, the skin of color, and take the pictures? It takes a lot of effort and also a lot of time for this to happen. Um, I think people are doing this, but it's going to take probably years before we can collect this amount of image. And um, whereas generating artificially, it's an easier way to do it. Um, so they're trying to find a solution to a, to a difficult problem. So I can understand where you're going with the diagnostic part. What about the therapeutic part? Are there people using artificial intelligence to look at treatments, you know, um, and try and decide, well, this treatment works in this particular individual with these characteristics. The chances of this treatment working in this other individual with five of the seven characteristics of the previous individual is X. Is there anybody looking at this as a the therapeutic uh, response model, if you will? Um, so we work mostly on computer vision, is which is looking at images. And to my knowledge, there isn't any research group that's working on images and treatment option. Uh, there might be other groups working on um, a text-based approach and recommending a treatment option. Then the other um, thing that I was intrigued by when you described what AI could do for us is making notes, the chat GPT story. I played with it a little bit. It's fascinating. Um, I'm not sure it was, you know, the topics that I got it. It just struck me that it was a, it's a really nice and easy way to do a Google search. So to help me understand why it's better than that or how you can, how you can make notes from it. I think the newest version of ChatGPT, ChatGPT4, 
And uh, researchers at OpenAI, which is the, the maker of ChatGPT, uh, they have tested uh, ChatGPT for a few medical uh, applications. And uh, one of them is, for example, um, a, a recent research in drama internal medicine uh, proved that ChatGPT is, shows more empathy when they reply to patient messages than real physicians. And that's something that's very interesting. I wouldn't have thought that this was possible, but mm. I think ChatGPT can help us in this area to show more empathy to patients. Um, another way is I believe that ChatGPT can help us better educate patients because when we explain something to patients, we use a lot of medical jargons that we, mm. are, we might not be aware of. Whereas ChatGPT can really uh, help us in this area. And for example, you can tell ChatGPT, um, can you explain melanoma to a patient in a sixth grader level? And ChatGPT will be able to do this, for example. Well, the empathy story is interesting. I mean, in itself, I mean, we've done a lot of, we've had a couple of uh, journal articles and we've done some podcasts actually on empathy in physicians and, and how to create that in the physician. And what you're telling me is, well, maybe we don't need to, maybe we can, maybe we, maybe we just need to say, would you write this in a more empathetic uh, way and then send that note to the patient? One reason why physician might appear less empathetic might be because we don't have the time to write the long, lengthy message to patients. I think physicians still has to learn about empathy and be educated about empathy. But I think ChatGPT can help us when uh, we don't, we might not have time to do so, uh, because we do receive a lot of messages from patients. Uh, and it's not always easy to answer them in a, in a lengthy way. We, sometimes we keep it short. As an older physician, I think of this as, oh, my God, what's going on? Did we lose our ability to interact with other humans because we're so busy doing other things? I mean, it's that's that's a whole different world. And one that we're going to have to look at chat GPT and sort of say, I wonder if it's something we really want to have in medicine. When the machine has to be, is more empathetic than the doctor? Or maybe it appears more empathetic than the doctor. I don't think the machine has any empathy. Uh, but when <laughs> ChatGPT outputs a text, uh, sometimes it sure sounds more empathetic than physicians. And maybe, like you said, Dr. Barber, it's an alarm for us to maybe to pay more attention to. Well, first off, in the journal writing, publishing world, the scholarly publishing world, ChatGPT cannot be an author. Mm-hmm. Because chat GPT can't be responsible for what it says. Mm -hmm. If you put out this message, do you envision that you would have this message was created by chat GPT at the bottom of your empathetic message? I would think you'd have to. I think if you put it in the message, I don't think the patient will like it. That's for sure. I would agree. So this message has been produced by chat GPT. Well, there goes your empathy. So I think it's a tool that we can use to help us write these messages, but I don't think these messages can should be copy-pasted directly to patients. A joke that, that my friends would say is, for example, you would say to ChatGPT to write an, write an email to someone, uh, a lengthy email that's very detailed, and the receiver will tell ChatGPT, can you make it into a three-sentence email so that I can read it faster? Yeah. Uh, so I don't think ChatGPT 
ChatGPT is just a tool that we can sure. use and learn from. I think the ethical question is very difficult to say, can we just copy paste what ChatGPT says to a patient? Because ChatGPT does make mistakes. And, and mm-hmm. when it does, it's, uh, it can be very serious. And uh, there might be biases hidden uh, within ChatGPT that we're not aware of. Um, so I wouldn't recommend anyone using ChatGPT <laughs> to reply to their patients, but it's a tool that can help us. So we had a recent article in JCMS on ChatGPT in the Durham Fellowship exam. That was fascinating to read because the, the ChatGPT passed, of course. And I think they someone did a law exam with it too and passed the law, LSATs yeah. or something, right? Or yeah. did their law, their bar yeah. exam. Um, yeah, it also passed, <clears throat> I think, the USMLE. Um, yeah. and, and I think even there were... Um, was also uh, a paper on uh, European dermatology examination question. And it, it also, I'm not sure it succeeded, but it had a good score. It shouldn't be surprising, I guess, because in preparation for our exams, we lock ourselves in rooms and memorize information to report back at the time of the exam, right? So yeah. ChatGPT is got it memorized already and you just have to give it the place where it can report back to in this area ChatGPT can be used for education in a way since ChatGPT can help us well help us answer these questions for example and sometimes it can also provide an explanation to their answer i think this can be useful for medical students or um or even residents to learn from ChatGPT but of course ChatGPT is known to make hallucinations, which is makeup references. Yeah. So we always have to be careful. But uh, I do think in the future, it, it can help education as well, medical education. Well, again, I hope there's a human checking the facts. We will always have to check the facts yeah. for, for, for a while, I think. Well, I also want to know, so if somebody sends me something, I'd also like to have a ChatGPT detector. Mm-hmm. Can you put a bunch of text in and say... Do you think this was created by ChatGPT? Um, I think in the early days of ChatGPT, I saw a few news articles on okay. a student who invented a ChatGPT checker so that if uh, the, an essay was written by ChatGPT, it would, it would say it. But then I learned that it made a lot of mistakes and a few students failed because of that. So I, I do think it's very difficult. And I did tested myself. I will write a few sentences that I wrote, for example, and then sometimes would say that ChatGPT wrote it. So I don't think <laughs> it's uh, we can trust it for now. Yeah. So did you take pride in the fact that you wrote as well as ChatGPT, or were you scared <laughs> that it found you out? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I think I think ChatGPT doesn't make any grammar mistakes, so I think I can be proud on that part. Yes. Uh, but that maybe means I write like a robot as well, <laughs> which is isn't so so good. Yeah. Well, it's scientific writing. Eh? It's different. Yeah. It's different than different than novel writing. So yeah. And I know a lot of people who are using ChatGPT now for, for example, for grant writing uh, or just f- to brainstorm. So if you use it for your grant, do they note that it was used to write the grant? On the on the form, or are they just putting it in and keeping their fingers crossed? So, from what I heard, it it is allowed to use ChatGPT as a tool okay. to write grants. Yeah. What would the grant reviewer say? I wonder. 
So if you use ChatGPT to write your grant for you, right? Does the grant reviewer have the opportunity, because he's just as busy as the person writing the grant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to put it through some kind of ChatGPT to say, well, what are the flaws in this um, proposal? Um, I, I think when I say um, use ChatGPT to help writing grants is to uh, correct any mistakes, uh, to rephrase a few sentences, uh, to find a few words that they can use. Okay, so uh, like grammar check. Basically, yeah. And okay, I, I think okay. I think what people are worried about is, for example, it's very daunting to start writing something. And by having ChatGPT to help us generate a few ideas to begin with, that might be helpful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I don't think anyone will and should use ChatGPT to, to write a whole grant beginning to end. I don't think they should do that. But it's just yeah. a tool like any other's like dictionary that we can use to yeah well write. my yeah. my bet is that tools for good yeah are used as tools for harm and so someone will have done it already undoubtedly i mean whether they got caught or not i don't know but people do you know unusual things in unusual circumstances uh, particularly with grants grants are it's a horrible experience for people to write grants and get refused and then have to write them again and refused and i mean it to have a tool like that must be so difficult to to avoid using mm-hmm. um, because just the frustration of going through this grant writing process over and over and over and over again in the same project. So a tool, a good tool perhaps, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. And I think there's still a lack of regulation on the use of AI right now, but I'm sure more and more uh, more rules will follow. And I think in medicine we're safe because we don't like to go fast and break things. We like to go slowly, make sure that everything is well studied. There's no biases. The results are, are real. And, and that's why there's phase one, phase two, phase three in trials. And I think AI will go through the same process before being used in clinics. Um, so I do think we need to be careful. What do you think of the people that say, stop AI? It's dangerous. We're not ready for it. Put it on hold. Let's rethink this whole thing and get some structure around it. I do understand where they are coming from um, because by moving too fast, we are bound to make mistakes. But I feel like in the research community, people are very careful on how they use AI. In medicine, they take a lot of time. They make sure that everything goes well. Uh, but in in tech, as in OpenAI, Google, uh, these companies, I'm not sure. It, it does seem to be moving a bit fast, but they are making a lot of innovations as well. Um, they're inventing mm-hmm. new things and making AI more capable. And I'm pretty sure at these institutions, they also have a security and ethics group that help guide them. Yeah. Uh, but we do need to be careful. Yeah. It's like in the the beginning when gaming was a, well, I know it still is a big deal for many people, but when games first got onto the market, it was the gaming world that actually advanced the science. Mm-hmm. And so the more sophisticated the games got, the more um, new science was produced that, we, that could then get put into things of practical use to us. And so it's probably the same sort of, sort of thing right i mean the ai folks are moving so fast but when you spin off the useful stuff maybe it'll it's 
it's the bit that's going to advance us going forward. Yes, I think so. For example, the technology that ChatGPT uses was actually based on an architecture invented by Google. Uh, but ChatGPT, well, OpenAI was able to commercialize it and make it more useful to the people. That's an example that, you know, there was technical advancement, okay. but OpenAI was to make it useful to people. So in dermatology, um, artificial intelligence, where in the next two years, three years, do you see any of us using it, using artificial intelligence? I, I, I call it, in my world, I call it augmented intelligence. I haven't got to the artificial part yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so do you think there's an artificial intelligence? Do you think do you think I will be using some form of it in my practice in the next two to three years? I don't think so. I think the word augmented intelligence is used very well here. Uh, we think that uh, currently uh, we think that artificial intelligence in dermatology should only be used by clinicians and not patients. Uh, in the next few years, um, I don't think that we will use it in Canada or in the United States. I think there are still a lot of research that needs to be done. There still needs to be a lot of trials to be done. But I do know that in other parts of the world, some countries are already using AI under population. Yeah, so they're using it for remote diagnoses. Is that what you're alluding to? People that don't have access to dermatologists? Yes, they, they yeah. use it for tri triage purposes. Yes. We, we can certainly see that. Eh? So now, when is artificial intelligence going to show up on my iPhone? I mean, for the, for, for medical purposes, such as the mall map. I think we're still maybe five to ten years away from uh, consumer-based AI algorithm for cell phones, smartphones. Um, because there are still a lot of challenges. Because, once again, we go back to biases. So we know that images from iPhones are different from images from Androids. And every single time a person updates the phone, uh, for example, if Apple upgrades their smartphone, the image will be different. And we don't actually know how the AI algorithm will react to those differences on these images. So I think we need to be very careful on that. And probably AI algorithm is something that will need to be updated on a regular a basis like our cell phones and our apps yeah. and needs to be adjusted for new changes in phone technology right well by image right i mean so and you can just see the difference in quality in the in the photographs that the android phones and the iphones take the, the pictures of some of these android phones the pictures are are spectacular yes yes and there's so much image processing as well that it doesn't necessarily represent on what we see with our eyes. I think if there's commercial interest and commercial benefit for it, I'm sure we're going to see spot diagnoses on the iPhone and on the on our portable phones faster than because wearing your medical device has become a big deal yes, commercially, yes, right? And so yes. so analyzing a mole or a spot or you know taking a picture of a rash, there's still rudimentary things out there at least. When my patients come in and say, oh, yeah, I Googled this and oh, I got this is this is the closest I could come. I looked at the pictures and people are getting pretty savvy. Yeah, there are a lot of apps that does that now that's available on our iPhones. But I don't think patients should use them yet because if they take a picture of a mole that's benign, but the app calls it malignant, then they're, they're worried for nothing. And if it's 
a malignant mole and is actually um, called benign, that's a even bigger mm-hmm. issue. Yeah, a bigger issue. Uh, and I feel like um, the best way is always to go see our family doctor and then maybe a dermatologist uh, to get examined for now. Yeah. And so to your upcoming study or your, your ongoing study, rather, training the trainer. So that the goal is to turn that family physician into a very smart iPhone so that they know exactly what it is that they're, that they're seeing and dealing with and when to refer, when not to refer, that kind of module. Yeah? Yes, exactly. I think this is the best thing we should do in the near future. And that's the best use of AI in the near future in dermatology. Uh, but I'm sure with time, AI is going to get better and there's going to be more research and we're going to be able to do a lot more. Uh, but we, we believe that AI should be, uh, should be used by clinicians for now. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm a primary care physician, yes, will I have the patient in front of me and be able to take a picture of that image or take a picture of that lesion rather and then compare it to a screen image? Is that, is that what you're envisioning? When you're when we're training the trainer, so that so do I have instead of I have a big textbook in front of me, if you will, that I can compare the image I've taken to the one that's on the screen. So this is where we're we're more talking about how to make AI more explainable in a way. Uh, so there are a few ways to go with it. So you can take a picture of a mole, and it can maybe give you the top three diagnoses with the percentage of each diagnosis, and it also can pull up images from an image bank that says, well, does your mole look like these images? So that can be an education tool and can be used for triage. All right. Well, I'm excited to see chapter two in your work. I mean, it really is, uh, it really is interesting. And, uh, and I, uh, you can see the pros and you can see the cons. And as someone who you know, thinks and about these things as you do on a daily basis, uh, I'm sure it's getting not confusing, but it's exciting. But at the same time, you have to be really, really reserved because mistakes are a big deal in our world. Yes, in medicine, mistakes it's it's a very big deal, and um, all the researchers that I I have met in this field are are always very careful and they're they're very meticulous as well, um, and they're they're taking their time to make sure that everything they do is in a proper and ethical way. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there a breakthrough? Is there, is there something that's going to change the entire world of AI? Is there something that everybody's sort of sitting and waiting for? Like, like we're waiting for a new battery technology. Is there something in the AI world where, where the researchers are saying, if only I had this, is there anything like that? I don't think there's a breakthrough that people are waiting for. But people are always waiting for better quality data. They're, they're always happy to see better quality data. And I think that's, um, that's where a lot of the effort should be. Thank you very much, Sue. It, that was great. It was a very um, interesting conversation um, based on your work and good luck with it. Um, and the frightening thing is an empathetic artificial intelligence. I mean, that's, that's Star Wars stuff, right? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be very interesting the next few years. Yeah, for in data, 
from Star Trek who's whose soul you know wants to he always explores humanity right trying to develop some sort of human emotion in in his uh, program and he would be the ultimate sort of artificial intelligence right so he he never he I don't think he ever achieved it in that series so maybe there's hope <laughs> maybe there is yeah yeah well the most exciting thing for me was the story of the the 360 move around that a typical nevis thing and that's a that's a nut that needs to be cracked. And um, if if we can get help doing that, wow. Yeah. I, that's impressive. I think that's the ultimate goal in a way yeah. to be able to do that. Um, but I think these machines cost a lot of money from what I heard. They, they cost yeah. hundreds of thousands. And these studies are financed by, um, by pharma. That's oh, the machine said, manufacturer, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so Stanford were able to have one of these machines if because they're doing the studies. But I, I can see it. I can see every dermatologist having one in their clinic. That would be great. But uh, yeah, it's not coming. So there was a group out of New Zealand. I think it was out of New Zealand at the American yes. Academy five years ago, maybe six years ago. You could you could sort of work with them and they had a they sell you a machine and you put your patient in it and multiple pictures and then you sent the data down to New Zealand and somebody sat in a room and gave the patient report and sent it back up to you um I forget what I think the machines were 40 or 50,000. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. But somebody actually, a human, had to read the data. Well, I, I was at the international SID. There was actually a group uh-huh. from Australia who, who was already doing this, 360 images and determining the photo damage uh, and predict in a way um, how they can better assess. Yeah, well, it's fun. Science is good. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. It was really good. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks to you all for listening. None of this discussion was created by ChatGPT. I hope you enjoyed this special editor's choice of the JCMS uh, podcast. Um, if you liked it, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and write us a review and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. If you're looking for more Grape CDA podcasts, be sure to check out Dermalogs, uh, our resident podcast hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kerry uh, Purdy. So until next time, uh, I'm Kirk Barber and be good to each other. 